Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Dr. Heather Baddeley. Professor Baddeley is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Connecticut and former Professor of Philosophy at California State Fullerton. I'm definitely not going to do justice to Professor Baddeley's complete resume here, but to say a few words, Professor Baddeley specializes in epistemology, ethics, and virtue theory, and she is one of the leading researchers in the world on the concept of intellectual humility. And she's also a pioneer on the topic of epistemic vice. This semester, I'm actually taking a seminar with Professor Baddeley on epistemic vice. Professor Baddeley's work influences research in philosophy, psychology, and education on intellectual humility. She has been co-investigator for a Templeton grant and principal investigator for a Spencer grant. And she's also editor-in-chief of the journal Philosophical Research, as well as an associate editor for the Journal of the American Philosophical Association. In this episode, Professor Baddeley and I discuss different theories of intellectual virtue and vice, and we focus on the virtue and vices of open-mindedness and closed-mindedness, respectfully. And we talk a lot about what effects social media and the information economy are having on intellectual virtues and vices. In particular, we focus on how the fake news phenomenon, the so-called Google effect, and the emergence of online epistemic bubbles and echo chambers are relevant to discussions of intellectual virtue and vice. It was a fascinating conversation, and I appreciate Professor Baddeley taking the time to have it with me. So without further ado, I present to you, Dr. Heather Baddeley. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. storm coming, Mr. Wayne. So yeah, thanks for doing this. I thought we could start just by kind of carving up the conceptual landscape here, then jumping into a bunch of stuff that I want to talk about. Um, so first, just to define some terms, uh, what are moral virtues and vices, and what are intellectual virtues and vices? That's awesome. So, I mean, I can answer that question myself, or you can help me answer it because you, I can try to help. You've been studying, <laughs> you've been studying vice epistemology for several months now. Yeah. So, um, I mean, what, a lot of this will depend on on where somebody falls with re, with respect to a more consequentialist line, or a more Aristotelian line, or a pluralist line. Right. right. Well, so maybe we could start there. What's Aristotelian virtue ethics? Because that's where virtue epistemology, which is what we're going to be talking about a lot, kind of derives from. Yeah. Right. So Arist- Aristotelian-based virtue ethics um, defines virtues as character traits. So it defines virtues in terms of acquired dispositions like courage. Right. Um, and those acquired character traits are going to involve dispositions of action and motivation and perception and affect. So the courageous person, on Aristotle's view, um, fears and yet faces the appropriate things at the appropriate times in the appropriate ways and for the right reasons, <laughs> right? And so the, the, the courageous person fears what she should, or on Aristotle's view, technically he should, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that doesn't mean the courageous person never feels fear. They do. Right. And Aristotle has this concept of the golden mean, right? So that's right. 
every virtue is the mean between two extremes. So if you're talking about courage, the excess would be something like rashness and the deficiency would be cowardice. Right. right? So you don't want to have too much of it. That's not really courage anymore, but you don't want to have too little of it either. You want That's to hit right. that mean. Exactly. Right. That's right. So the the people who have the arguably the trait of courage to excess don't have the virtue of courage anymore. They have the vice of foolhardiness or rashness. And those are like the... I mean, I don't know. Have you seen these jackass movies? Do you know these? Yeah. these ma- do yeah. you know these? It's been these? a while, but I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, these guys who are, like, shooting themselves out of cannons and stuff, like, they're not... That's not courage. That's being foolhardy, right? So mm-hmm. they're they're taking risks that aren't worthwhile. Right. Right? And they're not afraid of doing it arguably or they don't see those things as risks when they should right right and the coward is like sir robin the brave from monty python right the have you seen that no I seen oh that. my god i know Cody. i've been meaning to see that you story. have to watch it you have to watch it so but sir robin the brave is um afraid of everything everything right so his icon is a chicken He's afraid of everything, and he runs away. So, the, you know, it, um, Sir Robin the Brave is one of King Arthur's knights, as it were. And so whenever King Arthur and his crew are confronting something fearful, Robin just turns around and runs away, right? right. Yeah. So how does um, virtue epistemology relate here? I mean, I, I know a lot of the answers to a lot of the questions I'm going to be asking, but just for <laughs> <laughs> I've learned some things this semester, I promise. <laughs> So, so... But so there's virtue. Maybe we could just go into dividing up some of the yeah. different positions here in so you virtue can, epistemology. Yeah, you can think about... If you start by thinking about Aristotle's um, analysis of moral virtue, in like courage, in terms of character traits that involve dispositions of action, motivation, perception, and, and affect and behavior, right? Then... Um, we can we can think of that as as mapping directly onto what are called responsibleist intellectual virtues in the virtue epistemology literature, right? Mm-hmm. So responsibleists in the virtue epistemology literature are arguing that intellectual virtues have the same features and the analogous features and structure as Aristotelian moral virtues. Right. So they are also going to be acquired character traits that are praiseworthy, that we have some control over acquiring. Um, so they're going to be traits like open-mindedness, intellectual humility, intellectual autonomy. And these things these differ from moral virtues. When you're talking about moral virtues, you're talking about someone who has... Um, excellent ethical character yeah what you're talking about intellectual virtues you're talking about someone who has excellent intellectual character they're more disposed to get to the truth of things well, that's whereas right. people who have moral virtues are more disposed to get to the moral truth or the ethical truth right? or yeah so this is a, the how to divide or whether to divide moral and intellectual virtues is a huge right, problem so, in the literature, is there a right? Distinction or so not, it's right? I mean the way the way a lot of people think about it, so Linda Zygzebski in her really groundbreaking book, Virtues of the Mind, she argues that intellectual virtues are a subset of moral virtues. So she is a responsibilist in these terms. She's thinking of 
moral virtues in an Aristotelian way. And she's just thinking of intellectual virtues as analogs of Aristotelian moral virtues. And she thinks that um, virtues are deep and enduring acquired character traits that involve a motivation, mm -hmm. a motivational component, a, a good motivation, and they involve success in achieving the end of that motivation. And she thinks that definition of virtue applies to moral virtues and intellectual ones. Mm. It's just that the intellectual ones are deep and enduring acquired character traits that involve a specifically intellectual motivation, a motivation for truth or knowledge, or she says cognitive contact with reality. Right. And they involve reliable success in achieving that end. So they involve r roughly reliable production of truth. Right. So view. Right. Yeah. So her view represents kind of one of the main camps of virtue responsibilism yep. in the intellectual virtue literature. Then the other one is virtue reliabilism. Yep. Right. So for her, uh, as you just said, epistemic virtues, they have to be acquired. They have to be praiseworthy and yep. they're personal qualities. Right? That's so there's right. something that you put in effort to becoming uh, a patient person or an open minded person. Whereas reliabilists think that they don't need to be acquired or praiseworthy or personal qualities. That's so right. All they, need they could to, be, they don't have to be. They could be, that they don't have to be. Yeah. They, so they just have to be um, dispositions that lead to the truth. Like So right. having 20-20 vision, according right. to the virtue reliabilist, would count as an intellectual virtue, whereas the responsibilist would deny that because you're not responsible for having 20-20 vision, whereas you might be responsible for being an open-minded person due to the, your own intellectual effort. That's right. So, so one one way one way to think about this is responsibilists are called responsibilists <laughs> because they think that virtues are traits for which we're responsible and we're praiseworthy for coming to get them, and vices are traits for which we're blameworthy. We're blameworthy for allowing them to manifest in us. Right, the close mindedness, right. dogmatism. It's, it's a, it's a, right, close mindedness, dogmatism, intellectual arrogance, insouciance on Kasim Kassam's view, right? So these are all qualities that, on Zagzebski's view, we're going to be blameworthy for coming to acquire because we acquire them negligently, right? right. Um, whereas, and, and responsibilists think that these are. Virtues and vices are personal traits. So they tell us something about who we are as people, or if we're just thinking about intellectual virtues, they tell us something about who we are as thinkers. Same with intellectual vices. They tell us something about who we are as thinkers, whether we're good thinkers or bad thinkers. Right, right. so if you're just talking about someone's vision, that doesn't tell you anything exactly. about who they are as thinkers. What exactly. Kind of intellectual traits they have. That's right. That's right. So we could both have, you and I could both have... Uh, 2030 vision and you might be open-minded and I might be closed-minded right. right and your being open-minded tells us something about your motivation you care about getting truth and knowledge you care about considering relevant options relevant intellectual options whereas if I'm closed-minded I might care more about um making sure my thought conforms with the thought of other people. Or I might care more about protecting my own beliefs than I care about right. getting the truth. Yeah. yeah, and I want to talk more about open-mindedness and closed-mindedness yeah. later, and yeah. whether closed-mindedness can be a virtue and open-mindedness can be a vice. But yeah. before we get there, 
Um, I just wanted to mention the cognitive yeah. enhancement stuff we were yeah, talking about yeah, yesterday yeah, yeah. because that's relevant yeah. when you're talking about the distinction between reliableism and responsibilism. Yeah. Because you know you can imagine a future pill that permanently makes you an open-minded person or an intellectually humble person. And according to the reliableist, that would be a way to get acquired intellectual mm-hmm. virtue, just taking the pill. Because mm-hmm. now you can reliably get at the truth more with mm-hmm. respect to your intellectual, any intellectual pursuits you're engaging in. Whereas the responsibilist like Zygzewski would deny that those cognitive enhancements would be a gateway to virtue because you're not responsible. You're just taking a pill. That's right. And yeah. personalists would also allow you to take the pill. Right. And for you, right? So the personalist is going to say, they're sort of, they're, the personalist is combining, they're sort of finding a middle way between responsibilism and reliableism. They're saying intellectual virtues and vices are still personal traits of us. They still tell us something about our value commitments and our motivations, but they're not the kinds of traits for whose acquisition we have to be praiseworthy or blameworthy. So a personalist is going to say, yeah, you can take a pill to become open-minded. The trait that, the trait that you end up with, provided that it's a, um, a disposition to consistently engage with relevant intellectual options is still going to count as the trait of open-mindedness and can still count as a virtue, even though you're, you may not be praiseworthy for coming to acquire it or particularly praiseworthy. I mean, you might be praiseworthy for saying, yeah, sure, I'll take the pill. Right. Yeah, so this third view, just the listener's personalism, this is kind of your view that you've pushed forward into the literature here. And as you say, it's this kind of middle ground between responsibilism and reliabilism. And there are different levels of personalism as well, right? So there's what you call operational, operation personalism and possession personalism. Yeah. So operation personalism is we need not be responsible for the operation of our virtues or vices or the possession of them. Yeah. Right. So that's kind of it's more, very broad. Yeah. Right. So that's more in line with your inclination to be a free will skeptic. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> if I can out you as. <laughs> I've talked about it in the podcast. Okay. Um, right. So according, so the kind of less strong version of personalism would say that, yeah, maybe you're not responsible for the acquisition of certain virtues right. and vices that you have, but, but you might you're, just... you're responsible for changing them. That's right. Right. So I might, um, I might have had. You can talk about someone, um, I don't know, growing up as a member of Al-Qaeda, right? They have yep. what, what you might call epistemic bad luck, yep. right? They just, due to no fault of their own, grew up in this um, bad epistemic environment where all their influences were essentially wrong. So they're not responsible for possessing whatever vices that they ended up possessing in virtue of being embedded in that environment. But you might think that they're still responsible for changing themselves now. Once they find out, once right? They, once right. if they're so if a yeah so if a, a child who's raised by Al Qaeda leaves Al Qaeda and comes to uh, democracy, um, which our current status still sort of represents, <laughs> then we you know we might then say well now that child that person now knows. Um, now has, is exposed to all kinds of options and now has knowledge that they didn't have before. And right. so they, so we might hold them 
responsible for making changes to their character at that point, even though we recognize that they're not blameworthy for coming to have that character to begin with. Right, and if you're a free will skeptic, you're just going to deny that they even have the control to change them because there's no free will. That's right. I guess that's a kind of a segue into this can close-mindedness be a virtue question, right? So you're talking about the child who grew up in Al-Qaeda in what you might call an epistemically hostile environment, Yeah. right? Um, And so that that kind of brings up a question. Can close-mindedness in that environment be a virtue? Usually we regard close-mindedness as a vice. You want to be open-minded. But if you're in that weird Orwellian dystopian society or you're that child who's growing up in the Al-Qaeda society... It might seem more epistemically prudent to be close-minded and not subject yourself to these intellectually hostile forces that are trying to impinge upon your psychology. Yeah. So what do you think about that? So, well, my my inclination is to say, even though it sounds counterintuitive, that there will be cases where close-mindedness is a virtue, at least an effects virtue. So we were talking earlier about um, the distinction between responsibleist virtues and reliableist virtues. And in some of the thinking I've done about this, I divide the categories up in slightly different terms, but they still map onto those basic categories. So I sometimes think about responsibleist virtues and vices as involving good and bad motives, right? Um, so open-mindedness involves good motives to get the truth and so on and so forth. And... Um, uh, reliableist virtues and vices involve producing good and bad epistemic effects. So we might think, if we're thinking about whether or not closed-mindedness could be a virtue in an environment where you're surrounded by people who lack knowledge, say, mm-hmm. right? Um, we might ask, as reliableists, okay, is closed-mindedness in that environment likely to get you a preponderance of true beliefs? Or is it likely to allow you to sustain the true beliefs that you already have, mm-hmm. at least? Will it prevent you from losing your true beliefs through interaction with other people in the environment? Will it prevent you from losing knowledge, which is a really hard question to answer, I think, through interacting with other people in that environment. So it's sort of a shift from thinking about um, closed-mindedness as an Aristotelian style or responsibleist vice or virtue to closed-mindedness as a reliableist style virtue. So what I want to say is close, there, there are cases where closed-mindedness could be a reliable style virtue where the trait of being unwilling or unable to engage seriously with relevant um, sources in your environment um, is going to produce better epistemic effects. Right. Which it, is not to say that you should be motivated to be closed-minded. It's right. just to say from a consequential perspective, right. in that environment, being closed-minded is going to lead to more true beliefs. Ex- or, yeah, or at least... Or less false. Yeah, exactly. Or minimize the damage. Right. Minimize the epistemic damage. It And it minimizes the damage 
arguably not just because it protects you from losing your true beliefs. Whether you still lose knowledge is a legit question that I think is up for grabs. Right. And it's a, I mean, that's a <laughs> tough question to answer, but I think a really fascinating area. Um, but it can also, if you're closed-minded in, in a hostile environment, it also um, prevents you from amassing epistemic opportunity costs. Right. Right? Because then you're not spending a lot of your epistemic time and resources. Engaging with these false beliefs. Right. You have with space. Pro- with, right. And we're, presuppo- we're presuppo- right now, you and I are both presupposing that the, the person who is being closed-minded in the hostile environment has knowledge. Right. Right. And they know, and we're also presupposing, because we've talked about this before too, mm-hmm. that they know that they're in the hostile environment. Well, yeah, let me yeah. pick up that thread because yeah. I want to talk about that too. And I find that a fascinating question because you just mentioned the possibility that when you're in one of these environments, it could undermine any knowledge that you have. Yeah. So there's this question, how do you know yeah. when you're in a closed-minded environment? Yeah. Yeah. Or when you're in an epistemically hostile environment, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, right, so it might be yep. true that being closed-minded in an epistemically hostile environment is the best way to go from yep. a reliable yep. um, perspective. But uh, in order to know whether you're in a closed mi- an epistemically hostile environment, you might need to be open-minded. Yes. Right? Exactly, yes. <laughs> so there's so like this problem. How do you gain that yeah, knowledge? Yeah, it's very hard. So so I think part of the answer has got, has got to depend on how... It, part of the answer has got to depend on what knowledge consists in. Right. And the sort of virtue epistemology answer to that question is the answer you just gave, which is something like, well, maybe you have to do what an open-minded person would do in order to figure out that you're in a hostile environment to begin with, right? Maybe you have to start engaging with people in order to figure out that they seem to be saying things that are obviously false to you, right? Right. So maybe you have to perform some open-minded acts in order to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think part of part of what that means is that it's going to be very difficult for somebody who is already closed-minded when they are in a hostile environment right. to determine that they're in a hostile environment. Right. Because closed-minded people, though it's possible for a closed-minded person to occasionally do something that's open-minded, occasionally perform an action that an open-minded person would perform, um, it's unlikely. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that if, if a closed-minded person all of a sudden consistently started to engage with relevant intellectual sources and options and alternatives to their beliefs, we wouldn't call them closed-minded anymore. Right. right. So, but you can you can still occasionally have people who are close-minded who will, as a one-off, perform an open-minded act. But that's going to be really rare. So, so the part of the problem is that it's going to be really hard for people who are already close-minded to recognize that they're in a hostile environment. Right. And that, like, solving that. I don't have an easy answer to. I think in order to figure out an answer to that question, we need to figure out an answer to the question of how do you 
begin to rehabilitate vices like close-mindedness and do you have do does does changing somebody's clothes consistent close-mindedness does changing that consistent close-mindedness require external intervention right does it require intervention from the outside do we have to change those things from the outside in yeah and a related worry there it seems to me is someone's not already close-minded and they become falsely convinced that yes. they're in an epistemically hostile yes. environment when they're not. Absolutely. And then they adopt the disposition of closed-mindedness. Absolutely. Based on my recommendation. Right. Exactly. Right. And this is this is a, a serious worry. And you so, do address this in the paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but it is it's a it's a serious worry, and the concern is whether, you know, somebody who somebody who's. Um, you know, so ordinary kinds of cases of epistemically hostile environments are cases like um, George Orwell's 1984 or Mike Judge's film Idiocracy mm-hmm. or much closer to home, um, the kinds of environments that marginalized people might encounter can be epistemically hostile, at right. least insofar as marginalized people might be to their their credibility as knowers might be denied mm-hmm. right so um and that's called credibility deficit in the literature yeah right someone's right. not seen that's as credible right. as they should be because of some arbitrary fact right because of the color of their skin or their right. gender and because of identity prejudice right right and th- these ideas are coming from miranda fricker's uh, book epistemic injustice. Yeah. So, so these are the sort of ordinary, the sort of ordinary seems like not the right term here, but these are, um, paradigmatic cases of hostile environments and the kinds of environments you're thinking of is, okay, somebody who, I don't know, um, is a, a, a member of, you know, a religion that denies that women are people or something like that. They might come to believe that they're in an epistemically hostile environment because everybody disagrees with them. Right. And they might then say, Oh, I should be close minded because badly said it's a virtue. (laughs) And my answer to that, that what I have an answer for, which is, no, right? Of course they shouldn't be close-minded. They're, that's that's part of the problem, right? Those are that it's that kind of close-mindedness that's producing far more bad epistemic effects than good ones, mm-hmm. right? So if we're if we're thinking about whether or not close-mindedness is an intellectual virtue or an intellectual vice, and we're thinking about that question in terms of whether it's producing a preponderance of good epistemic stuff or bad epistemic stuff. Folks who are denying women rights and claiming that they are in a hostile environment and can close-mindedly ignore the rest of us who say, no, no, you cannot deny women rights, right? Those folks, their close-mindedness is going to produce far greater bad epistemic effects. Mm -hmm. So theirs counts as an effects vice. Yeah. One of the problems, it seems to me, in the contemporary political landscape, for example, is that each side thinks that the other side represents an epistemically hostile environment. So if I'm a Republican, I should be completely closed minded with respect to the mainstream media because they're just 
delivering yep. falsehoods yep. on a daily basis. And if I'm a Democrat, I should be completely closed-minded to anything the conservatives are saying because yep. that's an epistemically hostile environment. So we're at this impasse that's where right. we're not sharing the same reality that's right. Anymore. That's right. We're not sharing the same reality, and and we're we're as you described it, we're polarized, right? right. And we're 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 polarized in ways that we don't even recognize the same sources as being legitimate sources that we right. should listen to. Yeah. And see, the problem with that is yeah. that we're all individuals and we need to rely upon expert institutions, right? Like I can only do so much as an individual. I can't go out and run all the scientific experiments myself and to see what's going on in India right now. I have to rely on institutions which I recognize to be epistemically credible to understand what's going on in the world. What I'm seeing in America is complete distrust in yeah. all of these institutions, which has yeah. kind of opened the door to this new wave of conspiracy thinking and, yeah. um, alternative facts yeah and whatnot yep so that, right that's right i mean most of our knowledge is testimonial knowledge right. and so we have to we ha i mean think think about how many hours you have in the day not that many <laughs> and they're not all going to be devoted to inquiry right you're lucky if some of them you and i who are you know paid to be scholars we're lucky if some of our hours are devoted to inquiry and think about um, folks who don't have the privileges we have. Right. That's right. We have enormous privileges. And and then and so think about folks who who don't have time to devote at all to inquiry. And of course, we're all going to be relying on one another for knowledge. Of course, we are. So the the question one of the one of the things that's so disturbing about our current political environment is that we're not willing to trust the same sources right. and there's lots of skepticism being raised about sources that are legitimate sources and i think some of that um some of that skept some of that skepticism is similar to the kinds of skepticism raised by the cigarette companies as part of plans of misdirection right so what what they're fueling doubt right and the problem is if you're a novice it's hard to you don't know yeah the relevant information so it's hard yeah. to distinguish from the credible sources from the incredible sources so yeah. john hardwick he says that a layperson relies on an expert and that reliance is necessarily blind in the sense that a layperson cannot be rationally justified in trusting an yeah. expert yeah. Because the layperson does not know what it takes to be an expert because they're a layperson. So it's this yeah. kind of novice expert problem. Yeah. And as you say, people who aren't philosophers, they don't have the luxury of actually uh, engaging in intellectual pursuit in order to determine which sources are credible and which aren't. So um, I don't know. It's just well, it's hard to blame someone if they're falling under the sway of fake news yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and even philosophers, we don't, we we may not be that great. Oh, yeah, I'm not either. saying that. <laughs> but we do have the right. Yeah, 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 but but um, but so the, it's interesting though. I think sometimes, sometimes we give folks too little credit here hmm. because we don't trust just anybody. I think right. right? So. Um, so Miranda Fricker's got this, this concept of a reliable testimonial sensibility, right? And she thinks that our, 
are testimonial sensibility. This is the sort of process we use when we're relying on other people for knowledge. And that uh, process, our testimonial sensibility, can be reliable. It can rely on the people who have knowledge, or it can be unreliable. It can be completely skewed. And Fricker argues that because we are all growing up in a society that um, implicitly contains prejudices, gender and racial prejudices, for instance, our testimonial sensibilities, our process um, of seeing some people as trustworthy and other people as not trustworthy right. gets infected with those prejudices. And it gets infected with those prejudices due to no fault of our own. It, it gets, we inherit those prejudices in our, in our perceptions of who's a credible source and who's not. Yeah, so this relates right. to the credibility deficit right. excess stuff we were talking about. That's right. You might have an implicit bias, I guess you could call it, to uh, attribute less credibility to a woman or a That's racial right. minority because they're a woman or a racial minority without That's even right. realizing it. That's right. And you, and, and the flip side, you might attribute a credibility excess to That's right. someone who's a white man or whatever just That's because right. they happen to... Exactly. Yeah. And so we might... But Fricker's, Fricker's idea is that we can change who we see as credible over time and we can get better at tracking who is credible. So it's not as if, you know, I think the sort of hard line distinction about um, the, the idea that we may never uh, be able to figure out who the experts are. We, it's really hard to figure out who to trust. It may not be as hard as we think, but it is going to take some effort and time, mm -hmm. right? But there's some, you know, so there's some um, groups, groups of folks that I probably wouldn't ask for information. So if I were looking for the library on a camp, college campus, I might not approach a child. <laughs> right? If I see, you know, uh, a tiny kid, I'm not going to ask them. Right? So, so, but, and this is basic, but it's, right, we do make discriminations. Like we have, right, if you're lost on a campus and you're looking for a building, who are you going to ask? Well, you're probably going to ask somebody who looks like they've been on the campus for a while. <laughs> Right? right? Or maybe uh, you're going to look for somebody who, like, obviously looks like a student. And that would be the testimonial sensibility yeah, yeah, in yeah. play. Yeah. Well, that leads to another question that I wanted to tackle, and it's the flip side of the question that we were just engaging in. Can open-mindedness be a vice? Right. So yeah. we just considered, can closed-mindedness yeah. be a virtue? Yeah. Can open-mindedness be a vice? So yeah. why would you think open-mindedness is a vice? Well, it seems like there's something epistemically and perhaps even morally wrong with being open-minded to all perspectives, right? So if I'm talking to someone who's a Ku Klux Klan member Good. and I'm sitting down with them and I'm being genuinely open-minded yeah. with respect to the ideology that they're trying to convey to me, it seems like that would be a bad thing. Maybe I should, there are limits to open-mindedness and yeah. when you reach those limits, it's no longer a virtue. Yeah. So, so 
I happen to agree with that. <laughs> but I but I think that it's important to draw a distinction between being open-minded and being intellectually humble. Um, so I think that open-mindedness involves a, a willingness and ability to engage seriously with relevant alternatives to beliefs you already hold, for instance. Okay. So... If I'm open-minded when I'm engaging with a clan member, that that would mean that I would be putting my belief that white supremacy is false in play. I would be willing to revise that belief. Okay. So I I agree that um, open-mindedness in interacting with a clan member is not the trait to call on, right? Mm. Because because it's inappropriate to be putting that that belief, that belief shouldn't right, be, be revised. Exactly. That's law. Exactly. So, right, but intellectual humility and humility in general, that's slightly different. So often open-mindedness and intellectual humility um, will be manifested in the same actions. But this is a place where at least open-mindedness and general humility, I think, can come apart. So somebody, um, now this gets very complicated because we all have different social identities and it might be different for um, me to interact with a clan member than you or what, right? But, um, and that a, lot of that, that a lot of that will depend on our gender identity, our, our race and ethnic background, um, our religious backgrounds, and so forth. Okay, so all that's going to be really complicated. But um, there might be situations where it's appropriate for a person to manifest intellectual humility in an interaction with a clan member. Um, not open-mindedness, because they're not putting that belief up for revision, but intellectual humility in the sense that it might be appropriate not to jump to the conclusion that the clan member is an irredeemable monster. Right. Now that does not mean that they're a good person, right? Mm -hmm. Claiming that they're not an irredeemable monster does not entail that they're good or virtuous. It just, it, right? It just entails, and it can simultaneously involve full recognition that they are vicious in multiple domains of their lives. But it simultaneously might involve recognizing that I might get so angry when I'm interacting with a clan member that I'm likely to jump to the conclusion that they're just a monster. Like they're not even human anymore. Yeah. They're just a monster and they can't be helped at all. Yeah. So my sort of like I can even tell right now I'm getting angry. <laughs> like so my anger and like my anger and my loathing and hatred, right, might incline me to just treat them like they're not human at all. Mm -hmm. I guess one worry that I have is what you're calling intellectual humility strikes me more as a moral virtue. Now, as, yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. as so, we discussed, there's no clear yeah. distinction between moral virtues yeah. and intellectual so, virtues. But. Yeah, so no, that's a good point to make. And so I think this is actually, that's a, I'm glad you clarified that. So this is a, I think this is a case where we've actually got, it's, it's general humility 
that's happening here rather than intellectual humility. So it's general humility. It's um, it's a disposition to recognize and own our limitations. And one of the limitations that we might recognize here is the tendency to jump to the conclusion that a clan member is not human. Okay, so that's where the humility comes from. Right. And so, I mean, there's actually, technically, this is a cognitive limitation too, right? It's a, it's a, it's a tendency to jump to a, to a conclusion. It's a tendency to have a belief for which you, which you can't back up with evidence, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't have evidence that the clan member is inhuman. Right. Right? I can't, like, I'm, that belief isn't justified for me. But right. so there are, just yeah. to be fair to the other side, there are people, I think some at UConn, right? Uh, Lonnie, I think, who think that open-mindedness doesn't have relevancy uh, restrictions in the way yeah. that we've been talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what would do you think that people who take that line are just conflating humility with open-mindedness, essentially? Because I can see that side of the argument. To be open-minded is to engage with perspectives that, you disagree with yeah. right so if you're going to take that to the limit then you should be engaging with all perspectives that you disagree with even if w- there are perspectives that you regard as morally atro- atrocious yeah. or if they're just basic mathematical truths that everyone endorses like here let me tell you why two plus two equals five just right. be open-minded for a second right right it's right. like oh no sorry right. open-mindedness doesn't entail that yeah it's like what well, doesn't why not so yeah. I don't, i'm just trying to so I think if so I think if open mindedness this is a this is a really great question, um, and so uh, Cody you're referring to Lonnie Watson I don't yeah. really want to like we don't she's have, not here so we don't want right? to no we don't have to talk but, about her particular yeah, 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 yeah. views but yeah, just yeah, yeah, the other yeah. side yeah. of the so so the um, so the idea is somebody might say look open mindedness involves considering um, alternative ideas. To the beliefs that you already hold. And so why shouldn't open-mindedness extend to all alternatives? And that's a great question. I think the answer is um, we have to restrict open-mindedness and closed-mindedness to relevant alternatives. Because if we don't, then we end up with some potentially unpalatable consequences so if we switching back to closed-mindedness for just a second if we um suppose we consider you know suppose um you've got a small town police detective who's trying to solve a run-of-the-mill break-in and the small town police detective fails to consider the alternative that ronald reagan's ghost did it or David Bowie's ghost did it, right. or right? That's not closed-minded. Like, and it's not closed-minded because the alternatives aren't relevant. Right. So. And it's functionally impossible to consider all the alternatives because <laughs> right, there's literally right, an infinite right, amount of them. Right. 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 So, um, and I think in so just to flip it back to open-mindedness. So again, think of the small-town detective who's trying just run-of-the-mill break-in, not nothing big. Okay, and suppose that person does now consider the alternatives that David Bowie's ghost did it and Ronald Reagan's ghost did it. And, you know, and this can go on. 
right? There are all kinds of possible alternatives, right? right? Um, we might say, well, that's not open-mindedness. That's something like fanciful thinking or magical thinking. or It's something else. There's something else going on there. Right. It's not being open-minded. Okay. So I think that there... So, and this is not a view I came to happily. <laughs> so I, I came to this view very reluctantly because it would be much easier to be able to give an analysis of open-mindedness and closed-mindedness if we didn't have to talk about relevance at all because figuring out relevance is ridiculously hard. Yeah, I was going to say, so, that's the hardest thing. What are the relevancy so, restrictions? Where do we so draw the line? It's so hard. It's that's so hard. Yeah. Right? So I, I would have been much happier if I, could, if I could land on a view that didn't require relevancy restrictions. Right. But I don't think that's viable. Yeah, because there are easy cases like the ones we've been talking about. Yeah. Like, okay, we shouldn't consider the Ku Klux Klan members' right. perspective. We right. shouldn't consider the, exactly. the possibility that 2 right. plus 2 equals 5, but there's this huge right. gray area. That's right. Someone That's who's right. not as bad as That's the Klansman, right. so we be That's closed-minded right. with respect to him. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, so good. So you're asking about which, which options count as relevant and which don't. Right. So some of this is going to be keyed and indexed to which inquiries we're pursuing. Um, so it depends on what, what our inquiry is. Um, but the kinds of the, the easy, irrelevant options that we've been giving examples of are things like the Holocaust never happened. That's not a relevant option. Two plus two is five. That's not a relevant option. The earth is flat. That's not a relevant option either. Mm -hmm. Right. So what's the difference between, you know, white supremacy is true. That's not a relevant option. So interestingly, what I'm saying is these options <laughs> aren't even in the game mm -hmm. when it comes to open and closed mindedness. They mm -hmm. don't even get in the door. You don't even count as being closed minded when you ignore these things because they're not even relevant. Right. Right. So what does count as relevant? And that is tricky. There's a couple of things to say about that. Yeah. Um, one, one thing we can say, one thing we can explore is whether or not um, options count as relevant if they're likely to be true or highly likely to be true or um, we reliably believe that they're likely to be true. Mm-hmm. That's a sort of, in epistemology, we would say that's a sort of externalist take on relevance. There are some problems for that view, unsurprisingly. Right? Um, and I feel like one danger here, uh, which relates to what we were talking about and relates to free speech issues, like the, uh, there's been a lot of complaint that the people running a lot of the most prominent social media companies like Twitter yeah. and Facebook <clears throat> have a liberal bias. So they're writing off perspectives which they regard as not re relevant, right? Yep. And you have people complaining. These are legitimate perspectives yep. that represent a different ideology. Yep. So you can justify what you're doing saying you're not being, we're not being closed-minded. Yep. Those are clearly evil ideologies. And they're saying, no, these aren't evil ideologies. These are just expressions of free speech with which happen to disagree with your perspective. Right, so good. That's the danger, good. I feel like. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. I Implementing do. too many relevancy restrictions yep. which are based upon your worldview. Right. And you happen to have a lot of power. Right. You're the leader of That's right. Party. And so yeah, so one so one of the so one of the restrictions um, 
that one of the restrictions that I think feeds into your suggestion here would be, look, I have evidence for thinking that, that my, you know, uh, whoever runs Facebook or Twitter might say, I have evidence for thinking that my progressive view is not obviously wrong, maybe pretty close to being right. And so I'm going to, you know, count these other views as not relevant. Yeah. So um, that we can't have relevance, relevancy restrictions be so restrictive that the only views that ever get to count are the ones that are true or the only views that ever get to count are the ones that we have extremely good reasons for thinking are true, mm-hmm. right? So we have to, it's, there's got to be um, some restrictions that are going to hit the sweet spot mm-hmm. uh, so that we can still exclude options that we, we want to count as irrelevant. We can still exclude them. So two plus two is five still gets excluded. It still gets counted as irrelevant. Right. The Holocaust never happened, still counted as irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Right. But that we get to keep in legitimate disagreements for which each side has some good reasons. Even some that we know are false. And this is essentially the point that John Stuart Mill makes in his book on liberty, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, we need that war of ideas. You know, we need to engage with some lazy thinking and some false ideas in order to improve our own thinking or else we're destined to become dogmatic in our own thinking if there's no pushback whatsoever. So that war of ideas is most likely what's going to bring us to the truth, I guess. Yeah, I'm not sure I entirely agree with that, but I think that, I think, so... Am I misinterpreting Mill? Or no, 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 no. I think you're good, you're good on Mill, I think. <laughs> no, I... I might be, I don't no, know. no, I was thinking, um... I mean... I guess it can be use it can be useful to engage with claims that are false because it can help us see where we went wrong mm-hmm. and maybe help us find ways to move forward. Um, but I also think there's a point at which depending depending on what kind of falsehood we're talking about, our engaging with that falsehood might be a matter of either charity, something like epistemic charity. So we're engaging with someone who believes a falsehood, not because we think the falsehood might be true, not because we're putting our competing belief in play for revision, but because we think it's really important that that other person figure out that their belief is false. Right. We're doing it for them, not for us. That's right. Essentially. Right. Um, so I think there might be there might be cases where we're doing that that involve helping other people figure things out. There right. might be cases where we're looking at falsehoods that could help us figure out where we went wrong and how to move forward. Right. So those are cases where we can actually sort of dot we can we can come to understand the mistakes we make. Right. And we might, when we're helping other people, also be able to understand the mistakes that they're making, right? So these can these can be acts of epistemic charity, and they can be acts of acts that attempt to understand. So even when someone is saying something false, and this can apply, I think, even in cases where they're saying 
something not just false but irrelevant mm-hmm. that we wouldn't that is beyond the relevancy restrictions so we might ask you know we might actually if we had this goal some some folks might have the goal of figuring out why a particular flat earther believes the earth is flat right maybe it's important for them to understand why right for for their sake right so i want to pivot to how the internet might be having a negative effect on intellectual <laughs> virtues yeah. and might be enhancing yeah. intellectual vices and yeah. we've already we've yeah. already brought up social media and this ties into everything we've been talking yeah, about. Yeah. We discussed the Google effect before the podcast, yeah. so I wanted to bring that up yeah. again. And also the existence of echo chambers yeah. and epistemic bubbles. Mm-hmm. Right. So just start with the Google effect. Right. So this idea that um, the existence of Google and just the new information economy that we're living in, we have access to all of the world's information with just the touch of a button, right? Like more access than the most educated people had like a generation before us. So, right, there's some people that think that all this access might be hurting us intellectually because we don't have as much information stored in biological memory. Mm -hmm. So we're not as knowledgeable human beings, right? Um, So that might be a detriment on intellectual virtues. On the other side of the aisle, you might think that this is a good thing because now we have so much we get to avoid amassing epistemic opportunity costs, as you said, right? There's more mental space. You just, all you have to know is where to go to get the information. I can just go to Google, boom, figure it out. I don't need to store it in my head. So that leaves more mental space in my head to pursue other worthwhile intellectual pursuits. So I guess uh, we can start there, I guess. I don't have a particular question, but are you more of a optimist or a pessimist (laughs) regarding the internet and its effects on our intellectual virtues. It seems like when the internet was just beginning, everyone was an optimist. This is making the world more interconnected. It's making us more knowledgeable. And over the past decade or so, it seems like people have started discerning the negative effects that this is having. Yeah, I think it's hard to say. Yeah, it's probably both. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you know, I think it gives people a voice who didn't have a voice before. Right. Everyone's a journalist now. Well, right. And that can be both good and bad. Right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Right. So um, it gives people a voice who didn't have a voice before. Some of those voices are voices it's, you know, we should have been hearing all along. Yeah. Um, so voices of marginalized people who, you know, so think about the, the way that um, social media and the internet have helped the Me Too movement, for instance. Right. Right? Yeah. Those are good things. Right? But then at the very same time, you've got um, the internet giving voices to people whose voices are destructive. Right? Um, so it, I think it's, it's very difficult to say. Now, one one question I've been thinking about a little bit is whether or not the internet or certain sort of subcultures within the internet constitute epistemically hostile environments. Right. Right. So, and it seems likely that that's the case, right? Such that if you or I were to enter, if we were to go into some of those environments online mm-hmm. and encounter the people there, we would be knowers entering those environments where they'd be that we'd be saying p and they'd be saying not p about right. all kinds of things right 
And this gets to the distinction between epistemic bubbles and echo chambers, right? Yeah. So just to bring that quickly to the forefront, an epistemic bubble is where you're you're only seeing one particular perspective, um, but what's the official definition here? But other perspectives aren't being actively discredited, right? So like an example would be, right? So a social epistemic bubble in which some relevant voices have been unclouded through omission, right? So you're not seeing the full picture, right? So an example would be if I log onto Facebook and then the personal algorithms um, only feed me information that aligns with my mm-hmm. ideological perspective because the algorithms discern my yep. behavior on the internet and yep. come to have some conception of what my mind is like and my perspective is like. And you know, most of my friends share my perspective, right? So then I add people that are only my friends and I'm getting o- only news from them. But I'm not, so that's a situation where I'm in this bubble, but I'm not necessarily against considering the other perspective. Yeah. I'm just not seeing it. That's right. Whereas when you're in an echo chamber, I That's think right. that aligns more with what you were just talking about, yeah. right? This environment where not only are you not seeing the other perspective, but the other perspective is being actively discredited. That's right? right. The other perspective is being called fake news. That's right. So when you're caught in that kind of epistemically hostile environment, it's less easy to see how you would escape from it. Mm-hmm. Because when you're in an epistemic bubble, all you need to do is just be exposed to the other side. <laughs> right, right. But if- That's right. Or, or, right. And so, right. So, and these terms are coming from the work of a terrific philosopher, Christopher T. Nguyen. Right, yeah. And so, he, who does some, who's doing some really terrific work on echo chambers and epistemic bubbles and connections to... Thank you for sending me that paper, by the way. Oh, yeah. He's one, he does terrific work. Um, so... Right. So we might think that um, so folks in epistemic bubbles, so suppose, you know, suppose you, you get all your news from Facebook or Instagram or something like that, and that's it, right? You're not, you're not necessarily being discouraged to read the Times or the Guardian, or right? You're not discouraged, like Facebook isn't discouraging those things on your particular feed, Right. It's just that you're not seeking those things out. You might nevertheless, right, be willing to seek out those alternatives. And you might seek out those alternatives. It's just probably, it might be, and I'm not saying you, you, Cody. I'm just saying in general. Probably me too, honestly. <laughs> but, but, um, so, so it might be a combination of like, it might be mostly laziness, Right that or apathy or something that prevents us from making the effort to seek out an alternative when it hasn't been actively discredited Mm -hmm. but when it when we're in an echo chamber and not only do we not have have access to those alternatives within the echo chamber but the echo chamber is telling us that the alternatives are not legitimate sources of knowledge, right. then we're being discouraged from seeking them out. And right. so we're much less likely to seek them out. And even if we do seek them out or run across them somehow, right, confront them in some way, we're gonna be, we're gonna think that they're not credible sources. Mm-hmm. We might not even perceive them as credible sources. Yeah. And that's a problem. Yeah, so how do we... I just don't know how you fix this. I, I see... <laughs> it's, it seems like... And this is one of the bad problems with the fact that everyone's a journalist. Like a generation beforehand, it seems like there was kind of a... 
um, you know, there was like a few, and this relates back to what we were saying with respect to people losing faith in the institutions, but there was mm-hmm. like a shared campfire. There's a few networks where everyone got their information from. And now there's just so many alternatives that, and the, this goes beyond just epistemic stuff. It, it goes, has to do with cultural unity yeah. too, right? Yeah. There's Netflix and there's so many yeah. TV shows and, you know, not everyone's <laughs> tuning into the same TV show at 9 p.m. Yeah, no, where the whole yeah, nation can gather is, around it. Yeah, I'm watching this episode. You're yeah. on episode five of season two. Yeah, you're no, watching a different show. So That's interesting. Yeah, so it goes yeah. beyond this kind of epistemic, this breaking in social epistemology, but I, it, it expands to this disruption in cultural unity almost. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And just because there are so many options right yeah. even if all the options yeah. are good and some of them yeah. are epistemically hostile environments there are just so many yeah that is interesting and so right so and you might right you might think that's kind of a cool thing that there are all these options right but you're pointing out that maybe there's maybe there's a consequence of that that isn't Great, which is that it makes it harder for us to have some sort of cultural commonalities. I don't know, though. I mean, I think that yeah. I think that even if I'm even if you and I are not watching exactly the same thing on our streaming devices and so forth, that we're, there's still going to be plenty of commonalities. So I don't know. I don't know. I think it's hard, though. Yeah. I don't know what to say about that. Yeah. So I just wanted to end. I just have one more thing I wanted to talk about, and this is a paper that you wrote. Um, Moral self-indulgence versus epistemic self-indulgence. <laughs> okay. Can we end on that? Yeah, that of course. Cool? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just enjoyed I'm this in paper. Fa- I'm in favor about. of both. Moral <laughs> self-indulgence and epistemic self-indulgence. I'm in favor of all self-indulgence. <laughs> So, well, so what is moral self-indulgence? Yeah, so the in that yeah in that paper I was thinking about I was thinking about it um, in the way Aristotle is. So I was sort of, what I was trying to do this is this may have been one of the first papers I wrote about vice actually about epistemic vice. Um, so I'd been at the time I'd been spending a lot of time thinking about intellectual virtue, and I hadn't been spending a lot of time to- thinking about intellectual vice, and. I was reading a lot of Aristotle on moral vice. So he his paradigm of moral vice is self-indulgence. And he thinks that um, moral self-indulgence involves roughly dispositions to desire, take pleasure in, or consume the wrong objects at the wrong times and in the wrong ways. He's got a very sort of rigorous standard for what counts as possessing the vice of self-indulgence. Um, he contrasts the vice of self-indulgence with weakness of will, or in Greek, acrosia. Um, and he argues that the self-indulgent person um, has a false conception of the good. So the self-indulgent person prioritizes pleasure. They think pleasure is always the most valuable thing. Right. And so they think that whenever they're pursuing pleasure, they're doing something good. Right. Their view is false on his view. They're right. Kind of like I, a hedonistic it, worldview. Right, right. That's right. So he, so they're the self-indulgent person's picture of the world, their conception of the good is a false conception because there are things that 
outweigh the value of pleasure sometimes, right? So, um, but, but the self-indulgent person doesn't recognize that. The Ocratic person, the weak-willed person, is somebody, according to Aristotle, who knows what the good is, mm-hmm. but, and rationally desires pursuit of the good, but simultaneously has appetites that compete with the rational desire to pursue the good. Right, so, so they know that getting as much pleasure as much of the time isn't the best way to live. They're not a right. hedonist. That's not their world that's philosophy. Right. That's but right. they still end up living like that because right. they have a weakness of will. So th- that's right. So the behavior of the self-indulgent person and the weak-willed person could be identical. Mm-hmm. And yet their psychologies are different such that the self-indulgent person thinks that what they're doing is the right thing mm-hmm. and intentionally pursues it for that reason. Whereas the Ocratic person knows that what they're doing is the wrong thing and feels really badly and feels regret about doing it nevertheless. And there's, right. there is some doubt as to whether weakness of the will is a real phenomenon, right? There's, there are some philosophers who will say, no, if, you're, if you choose to, mm, let's say, eat a snack right now instead of going to work yeah. out, at some yeah. level you have to think that it's good for you in this moment. So yeah. you can't actually That's have right. a conception so that, of the good and not be... Motivated. motivated to that's right. It. Yeah, so that's exactly right. So there's some philosophers who reject weakness of the will um, and reject more and more broadly folks who might reject the idea that we could um, pursue something that we know isn't good for us or pursue something that we know is bad or something like that. Yeah. Um, Aristotle's not one of those folks and neither am I. <laughs> I think, you know, I think most of my life is sort of lived in that weakness of will sort of zone. Oh, me too. <laughs> so, um, but, but so that's roughly Aristotle's notion of moral self-indulgence. And he's thinking about moral self-indulgence in terms of pleasures. He specifically says pleasures involving food, drink, and sex. Like that's his, right. so it's pretty restricted in pleasures. that. That's right, bodily pleasures. And he actually argues that it's not intellectual pleasures. Um, So what I wanted to do was think about whether we could be epistemically or intellectually self-indulgent, whether there might be, you know, whether we could consume or desire or take pleasure in the wrong epistemic objects at the wrong times or in the wrong ways. And so one thing, one thing to think about is, you know, I was thinking about consumption of trivia so I was thinking about, you know, some people just love, but today is opening day of baseball, right? Some people love baseball statistics. Like they are into it, right? right? They know like, you know, what Jared Weaver's ERA is when he's at home on Thursday afternoon day games. Or what? I mean, it it's, crazy. Like a it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Crazy, and then you've also got like people who are into celebrity trivia. Oh yeah, right. Keeping so, up with the Kardashians. Exactly. Exactly. Gotta keep up. Right. Who wears what dresses to the Oscars and but all? I mean, it's right. So, so it seems like there could, we might be able to give some analysis of which epistemic objects are inappropriate or appropriate and and this is tricky area but some analysis of which objects are more appropriate than others mm-hmm. which truths are more important than others so right. truths in truths about um the global economy or 
climate change, for instance, might be more important than truths about what Kim Kardashian's wearing today, right? Or, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or what Jared Weaver's ERA is. And, um, and if that's the case, then we can use this idea to get some traction for a notion of epistemic self-indulgence. So we might say that the epistemically self-indulgent person is somebody who takes pleasure in or desires or consumes inappropriate epistemic objects or does so at the wrong time. And one of the things I was thinking about is whether or not philosophers (laughs) might be epistemically self-indulgent. Right. You should be paying attention to other things, maybe That's the news, right. maybe your family. That's but right. Instead, exactly. instead, you're rereading Kant for the exactly. 60th time, right? Exactly. Yeah. You don't go to the party because, yeah, exactly. You're still reading Aristotle or what have you. And what, so, what fascinated me, which is something that you pointed out in the paper, is this potential asymmetry between moral self-indulgence and epistemic self-indulgence. So the opposite of moral self-indulgence would be moral insensibility, right? Yeah. So you're not engaging in enough bodily pleasures, right? Some, yeah. You gotta eat, sometimes you, you, life, a, a life well lived includes some of these pleasures. That's right. Right, so, and the point that you made is that in the moral sphere, it's much more common to be morally self-indulgent, right? Yep. To be the person who just engages in too much pleasures, much less common to be morally insensible. But in the epistemic sphere, in the intellectual sphere, it's the opposite, it seems like. It's much more common to be intellectually insensible, right? Not not reading enough, right? Yeah. Not digesting yeah. as much intellectual content. Yeah. And it's yeah. less common potentially to be intellectually self-indulgent. So right. that's interesting so, asymmetry. Right. And so if, if we, I mean, if we think about what's happening in Britain now, right, with the, they're sort of um, grappling with exit from the EU, whether yeah. that's going to happen, how it's going to happen. And if you think about um, the electorate, and I'm not, you know, uh, throwing shade on Britons here. I mean, clearly there are problems with the U.S. electorate as well. It's like a similar phenomenon. Right, yeah. Like, if you think about the electorate in Britain or the electorate in the U.S. that led to the, the vote for Donald Trump to be president or led in Britain to the vote to exit the EU... You might wonder whether there's some epistemic and insensibility happening there among the electorate. You might wonder whether the electorate care enough about truth. Right. Yeah. 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 So it's not that it's not that they're it's not. I mean, maybe they're they might be in a way they might be epistemically self-indulgent in the sense that they may be focusing on the wrong kinds of truths or not focusing on truths at all. Right. Um, um, Or they might think they're focusing on truths, but they're caught in some echo chamber, epistemically hostile environment. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest dangers with democracy in general. Right. Like everyone who's a legal citizen has a right to vote, but if the populace isn't educated, then that can lead to really bad political outcomes, right? I mean, obviously. Well, it can, yeah. I mean, democracy is usually not boring (laughs) in this way, right? So, I mean, it can, right? And so it, it matters whether we have an electorate with intellectual virtues and it matters whether we have an electorate who cares about getting the truth yeah all right you want to end it there yeah whatever you're yeah whatever whatever works
Thanks for doing this. Appreciate oh, it. Oh, yeah. Until next time.